everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The City Speaks. This is episode 11, and we're going to talk about differing types of accountability in this episode. This is another one I'm doing without notes. I apologize in advance if it's a little bit rambly. I just want to get a lot of points across. I've been thinking about a lot of different kinds of accountability and the way that I view them in the world and why they're important. It's also important to note, because this episode is probably going to be pretty heavy, that this is my first episode with a haircut. So if you notice a difference, I don't know, whatever. In, uh, in this purely auditory medium, uh, if you notice the visual difference in me, please uh, leave some comments and say that you did. Hit that subscribe button, uh, follow me on YouTube for more Twitter content, whatever. But let's get into it. So the first kind of uh, topic we're going to talk about is content creator accountability. This is an important one, and it's one that's sort of been turning over in my mind for uh, a few days now. How, and the question I want to discuss, not answer, but I want to discuss is how accountable should a content creator be for their community's actions? I think there's a lot of different ways you can come down on this one. I'm going to start us off with a little example from my own personal experience. Uh, I was playing with a friend back in, I guess it was 2018, late 2018, maybe 2019, playing Fortnite, if you can believe that, and with my friend called Simply Craig, and he was streaming. He used to, he and I were streamer buddies for a while. And he and I were bombing through tomato town or some shit we were in somewhere and i got downed because i'm terrible and uh you know just kind of like ah, i got down that that's a bummer and craig managed to kill the duo that was on me and he saved me and res me and stuff like that and it was only then after i glanced at the kill feed i was like that was that was ninja it was ninja and i think he was playing with courage at the time but i don't remember or maybe it was tim the tap man i think it was tim it was courage and or excuse me ninja and tim and we were like, and it was, you know, the timing I noticed it was funny because it was like the floodgates opened. Uh, Craig had his Twitch handle in his name as his username. So people found him pretty much immediately. And his, his stream went up to about a thousand viewers in a minute. It was crazy to watch. And a lot of those people, there was a good chunk of them who were like, oh man, you just killed, did you know you killed Ninja right there? Like, whoa, that's crazy, dude. That's, whoa, you, you beat Ninja. Did you know that was him? And then there was like a non-zero part. I would say probably a few, few dozen, maybe a hundred or so. Uh, people who were flaming him for stream sniping, obviously stream sniping Ninja and and, and have to, they, he had to be cheating because he killed Ninja. There's no possible way. Um, safe to assume that these, these folks were mostly young. And this is where I think it's important to designate that de- it really depends on the community, how accountable the creator should be held. Um, this was a small portion, you know, Ninja was a 20 to 30,000 plus viewer streamer at the time, or even more, maybe up to 50 or 60,000. Uh, this was 2018. This was the peak of Fortnite, And this is a very small part of that community. Only a couple hundred or so people came over and were, were net negative towards Craig. And he handled it like a champ because he, he's a, you know, he, he, he's a capable guy. He w- took it on the chin and, and a lot of, uh, a handful of the people who came by stayed around and became regular viewers of his stream because of the way he handled it. And that's, that's super awesome. And I think that as a streamer, that's always what you want to try and do. And you got to ignore the negativity on some part, but there was a non-zero percentage of the people who came over in this sort of raid, raid, if you will, Ninja didn't care, um, who felt the need to defend Ninja's honor on his behalf. And obviously this is silly. This, In retrospect, you can see this and be like, that's dumb. I mean, I was there, Craig was there, we weren't stream sniping, we were just playing and it just so happened. I mean, I got tased, so what the hell do I know? And even Ninja's reaction, like we went back and watched it from his perspective, he wasn't even really that mad. It was sort of like your typical, he's a competitive guy response where he's like, ah, oh, dude, this guy's just chilling with C4 on his teammate, like, Ugh, whatever. And then he just queued up for another game. So it's not like he was like, this guy's stream sniping, blah, 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 rage, rage, rage. 
We've all seen the H1 clips. You know, Ninja's changed and, and evolved, or at least publicly so, in the last few years. And I think as a person, we all grow up and mature at some point, hopefully. And so he didn't even react badly. But still, enough of his community felt like there was this need, just a couple hundred, again, like a very small portion, felt the need to come into Craig's chat and harass him. And if Craig had been in a, a more fragile state of mind or had had a terrible day or was going through some stuff in his own life or had bullying experiences in the past that negatively affected him and, and would have brought up, you know, this would have resurfaced that trauma in his psyche, I guess. Um, this could have gone any number of ways. He could have never streamed again. He could have seriously been put into a dark place. And so the question is, should Ninja be held accountable for the actions of these few hundred people? Because they're from his community and they clearly felt some need to defend his honor. And where did that come from? Um, I think, you know, in this case, looking at Ninja and, and having watched his stream a couple times, he's a competitive dude and he was also a massive streamer. And even somebody who, when my stream was as popular as it was and I maxed at 150 viewers, so it wasn't 60,000, I was still getting targeted by stream snipers. Um, and there is a tendency to sort of believe that anybody who looks like they're targeting you is stream sniping you. And so I think this happens a lot with major creators, especially the super massive ones. People will spend a lot of time of their day trying to make your gaming experience miserable for whatever reason, whether that's because they're trying to get their own channel off the ground and for clout, whether it's because they're just genuine hate watchers, which is like a bizarre subset of human beings that I don't really understand. Like, why are you in somebody's chat for eight hours a day if all you do is make fun of them and insult them? But hey, I don't know. There's a, there's a big trend that goes around social media about how mods have to hate their streamer. Otherwise, it's not cool. They have to constantly be bashing the streamer. Otherwise, they're not friends or real mods or something. It's the same trend that happened in like the early to mid 2010s of like, if your best friends don't punch you in the face and tell you your outfit is ugly, are they even your best friends? That's why we're best friends, because they hate me or something like that. That's an extreme example. But you know what I mean? Are they really your best friends if they don't insult you to your face? I mean, yeah, I'd hope so. Uh, so... I think it, what happens is Ninja will have these reactions over time, right? He'll have these moments where people are either obviously stream sniping him or he thinks they're stream sniping him. And I would say that probably more than 50% of the time to pull a random number out of my uvula, this is completely wrong. Uh, or this is completely accurate, rather. Or it's wrong. I don't know. But a good chunk of the time, a non-zero percentage of the time, he is being stream sniped. Um, and people are targeting him to ruin his game. And so he's obviously, he's a human being. He's going to have a negative reaction to that. That sucks. A lot of people will sit there and be like, oh, deal with it. It's part of the job. But... Most people who say that have never played a video game where they've had somebody for eight hours straight try and dunk on them. You know, it's like having a shitty manager at a, at a part-time job or at a full-time job. You know, if you work retail or if you work in an office somewhere and you have a terrible manager who's trying to make every day hell, it's like, well, it's just part of the job. Like, it's not. And it shouldn't be, you know. And if it is, hopefully you can leave and change games, change careers, whatever. But it still shouldn't happen. It doesn't excuse the people doing it and the, the miserable, hate-ridden human beings that are wasting their time doing this um it doesn't excuse that and so ninja is going to have reactions to that and i think these reactions sort of get i think this is a generalization but i think the younger you get the more black and white you tend to view these interactions so that you don't have you don't have so much room to interpret nuance maybe or you just don't do it or for whatever reason people will see this and be like you see it enough times and all of a sudden they equate ninja dying to somebody camping or somebody stream sniping or somebody abusing overpowered guns or whatever the common complaints of the of this streamer are and then they'll just assume that's the case all the time because they really want their favorite guy to win and this was something that i i addressed a lot when i was uh, a, a fall guy streamer people would come in and ask me on the daily probably multiple times a week at least saying like "Ooh, who do you think is the best fall guys player and my response was always like a 
let's be first and foremost, I don't care. I don't have an opinion on that. I don't think anybody is the best. Nobody wins consistently enough, especially in tournament. Um, but either way, I think most of the time that's like an exercise in ego because a lot of the time it boils down to whoever's stream you like the most. You know, if you like mine, you're going to say me. If you like Stewart, you're going to say him. If you like Drew Crew, you're going to say he's the best Fall Guys player. If you like Be More Royal, he's the best Fall Guys player. The list goes on. Um, and I think that that's just sort of a, a instinct of people being fans of something, which is, you know, fan is often forgotten as being short for fanatic originally, I believe anyway. And uh, even if it wasn't, it definitely holds true today. I mean, like, look at look at hardcore sports fans, people bursting into tears because a sports team they like didn't win a game. It's like, wow, guys, I mean, I like sports as much as the next guy, but uh, man, crying? I don't know. That's That seems pretty out there. Um, you know, maybe there's other stuff going on in their life, but if they're if they're crying over a sports game it doesn't seem very good but either way my point about this is i don't think you can hold ninja accountable for that he's there's going to be a certain amount of nuance lost when you're a large creator and i think this is one of the advantages actually of being a smaller creator and one of the reasons i never want to be like a ten thousand plus viewer streamer and that's not just me huffing enough copium to fill a hot air balloon i just don't want to be that size of streamer because i want to have meaningful interactions with my community and it feels like and i want that to be the norm and it feels like at least for a lot of large streamers that I watch, it's really hard to have meaningful interactions with people when there's a crowd of people shouting random stuff at you all the time. Um, they will still happen, I'm sure. And a lot of big streamers, I'm sure, will say like there are people in the community who they have meaningful interactions with. But I want it to be the norm. Like I want it to be something that's not just like, oh, once in a while, you know, I see a message that allows us all to have a really good constructive conversation. Um, and I think at a certain point, there become like splinter hive minds within your community in a certain way. You know, there's, there were a group of people who spun themselves up into thinking that Craig, my friend needed to be lambasted for obviously stream sniping Ninja when they had no idea. They didn't know. Um, and Ninja didn't even care and he didn't send them. Um, so these were products of them seeing his reactions in the past, maybe, and being like, Oh, this is how it always has to be because they're, maybe they're young and they don't really have the critical thinking skills necessary to be like, take a case by case. And, and maybe ask first and put your toes in. But there's a lot of a lot of people in their teens and early 20s and all the way up to their end of their days who are, you know, willfully ignorant of stuff like that and refuse to put in any critical thought. So accountability, I think, is important, but it's hard to assign where it starts. Um, I think as you get to be a bigger streamer, your audience becomes more of an unconscious reflection of, of the attitude you put forward as a general rule of thumb. So if you're constantly complaining about stuff and if you're whining about overpowered things and you're going to get these like factions within your community that will become self-perpetuating in their their spinning up of these negative traits and i think it's it it'll happen much more negatively with uh much uh, much more frequently with negative traits than positive ones but you know if you're a toxic whiny flamer um then you're you should expect that your community is going to devolve into that and on some level depending on how much of it is played up you should be held accountable for that because the side effects of you showing this to the masses and sort of implicit by you know by extension implicitly saying that this is okay and in fact cool and good you are influencing the masses behavior on some point um and this is the danger of parasocial relationships and and being a celebrity worship icon which i think is cringe i think you know nobody should worship anybody you know how many times have you have people propped up a certain celebrity and just found out that they're like anything from you know maybe a little bit greedy to entirely openly racist or or xenophobic in some way it's just not it's never worth it and this is why the whole separate the art from the artist thing is such an interesting uh, topic but and in, you could really go either way on this but i think that you almost have to do that right away you don't do that 
as a reaction to the artist being terrible. You don't do that by being like, oh, yeah, this Hitler guy was pretty good at painting. Oh, he did what? Oh, oh, oh. you can't do that. Just don't take the artist. Don't think that because the artist is good at something, writing a book, making some music, playing a video game. Don't think that they're a good person. Admire their skill for what it is in a vacuum. Don't don't associate them with that and then use their actions beyond that. Like if somebody's a big flamer and is constantly hating on people and blah, 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 one charity drive is not going to make them a good person and it's not going to reverse that tide of negativity that they've generated within their community. Just like if somebody's a really wholesome person, one slip up and a swear word or a, a negative interaction with somebody is not going to make them a terrible, it's not going to reverse the positive tide of that community. Um, so I think, I don't know where the line is and I don't, I don't know that there is one that's commonly agreed upon. Um, I don't think that you should be held accountable for individual bad actors or even small groups. But what I think you have to acknowledge as a streamer with these parasocial relationships is that the attitude you put forward is going to be reflected in your community. And that is largely a result of you. So you can't say like, oh, well, people are just mean and like, it's not my fault. They don't have to copy me. It's like, yeah, no, that's true. That's, that's obviously true, but they are going to copy you. So what are you doing to combat that in some way, right? And so for me, part of the reason I like being a smaller streamer, even when I was at 150, is that I felt like I could have meaningful interactions with people. And the regulars who were more the most vocal, because that's the people you talk to, nothing against lurkers, but obviously if you're lurking, it's uh, you don't have such an active role in participating in the community, and that's fine. But the people who I was regularly talking to and felt like I knew on some personal level, I, I knew what to expect. And I knew that, and I had prime confidence that as far as I know anyway nobody went to any other communities and was like oh yeah you're garbage and Spark City's better <laughs> um, I definitely had one person do that but that person got banned uh, that was that's a long story that's another form of accountability um, that's a that's more about dealing with trolls and stuff like that that's a completely different conversation which I can talk about and I can talk about my approach to dealing with trolls and dealing with with negative people and, and haters if you will forgive the dense academic jargon that I'm employing here. But that's one type of accountability. Should content creators be held accountable? I think nebulously, yes, but on case to case, it depends. Um, that's sort of my take on it. I think nebulously, if a, if a creator's community is consistently doing negative, terrible things, there's a certain amount that points to the creator and, and their implicit engagement with this behavior. So, Let's move on to potentially, I think, the single most important type of accountability in a capitalist system, which we all live in for the most part, and that is consumer accountability. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, man, this guy's like a show for big corporations. You know, he's the kind of guy who's like, you need to be using a paper straw while oil companies are dumping thousands of gallons of oil into the ocean accidentally or whatever. No. What I do think is that we as consumers have more power only if we band together, but we have to learn what our power is that we have over corporations. And this is important. There's a, we had a conversation about AI art in our Discord, in my Discord, and it was really fun. And there were a handful of people who participated. It was Kenzie, Dead War, and Nord. I really appreciate all of them for, for weighing in on it because I really like having these conversations and it's fun. And for anybody who just, you know, lurked in the, in the chat and, and watched as we had our discussion and, and use that to fuel their own thought process on it. That's also really great. And I'm glad you did that. Um, even if you don't disagree, agreeing or, or even if you disagree, Freudian slip lull, even if you disagree, it doesn't, that's, it doesn't matter to me whether you agree or disagree. The point is that you're considering other people's opinions and we're having constructive discourse. And that's one of the things I pride myself in as a, as a community leader is that 
I want always want to foster a space where people can exchange ideas and A, are not worried about being attacked for their ideas, but B, also are open to being like, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that or, or this, that, or the other thing. They're, it's in good faith, I guess, is what I'm saying. They're not coming in being like, I'm so Zionist, it's crazy. But they're also not coming in there being like, ooh, no, you, you have a slight tolerance for AIR. You should be burned at the stake for being a witch. Um, and so we had a conversation about AI art. And my take at the end of it, which was very unhelpful, was I don't know where I land on it yet. I think it's too early in the conversation. I think anybody who's sort of taken a hard stance on this might not be considering everything or they might have uh, some biases that they're unable to to recognize and look around. Um, but I think the important thing is that AI art is going to lead to conversations about the ethics of art as a service or commodifying art. Um, people who want to make a living off of being artists have commodified art to a point where it no longer becomes about a message that you think is unique to you that you're trying to send to the world. It's about a lot of the time, especially if you're a commission artist, it's about drawing what your, your uh, consumer wants, drawing what your client wants. And that is, that is commodification. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we live in a capitalist world. You have to make money somehow. It's not what I'm, I'm not saying. It's like, Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And you're a lower class of artist if you're not doing it with your soul or what it like. no, but I do worry that there's a lot of egotism that's get, that gets wrapped up in a lot of this stuff with, with artists. The whole notion of like, oh, there's something non-quantifiable about the human experience that art represents and only humans can generate art or create art, whatever you want to, however you want to rebrand it. Only humans can create art because there's some spark of human creativity that's required. I, I think that's kind of bullshit. And I'm a, I'm a musician. This applies to music too. I'm not singling out visual artists. I'm not singling out cinematographers or what or game designers. I'm not singling out anybody. I'm a musician. I feel the same way about music. I can very easily, and music YouTubers have made careers out of being like, this is part of the reason, at least, that you like something. These tones are specifically resonant to the human ear. That's why they persisted throughout Western music for so long. Or these intervals specifically are used generally in in this kind of situation, and it's a trope, and so your ear automatically associates with that. You know, people have gone over cadences that sound more like Christmas music because they were used a lot in movies in the 20th century. Um, or, you know, Studio Ghibli, Joe Hisaishi has a very has a very distinctive style that's you can absolutely say, like, this is quantifiable. Here is here is how you can analyze and break it down to its building blocks. Um, and so that's that's my first thing. I don't think there's anything like inherently Quant as somebody who writes music, I don't think there's anything inherently non-quantifiable. There's, or at least, it's not as big of a deal as it seems to be. I mean, look at the pop music industry, and for better or worse, the pop music industry just jumps on a trend that already exists, manufactures it to sell a product, and that's commodifying music, just like commodifying art exists. We live in a capitalist world. All everything, if you want to make money off of it, means you have to commodify it in some way. I think, or offer it as a service if that's not commodifying it. I don't know, but. My issue with this is the egotism of, of that we are the only ones who could do this. When you look at stuff that AI generators spit out and it's like, that's pretty cool. And those particular, you know, that's that's never been done exactly like this. And I I, I go back and forth so much on like the, well, it's in the style of something. So it's it's ripping it off. And I think this stems from like, if you ever look into music and, and legally music history, like especially in the last 50, 100 years or so when copyright was more of a thing, 
and more enforceable. And then in the digital age, obviously, things changed very rapidly and our legal system is not set up to deal with rapid change because it's built on precedent. Um, if you look at like music lawsuits and people getting sued for look at Marvin Gaye's estate suing uh, Ed Sheeran for his song that sort of maybe kind of sounds like it, but really only in the chord progression. And like, do you own that chord progression? So it's weird. We can all agree that like there are certain things, building blocks that all art is based off of. Right. We only see color in a visible spectrum, in a very relatively narrow visible spectrum. Right. No color is copyrighted. No specific pose of a character is copyrighted. No set of colors, no palette is is copyrighted. And then if you want to flip this into a music example, that no scale is copyrighted, no chord progression should be copyrighted. Um, no, and like maybe melody line, but even that is not really like if it's very inconsistently enforced over history, especially in the recording age. So there's a lot of, and I mean, if you look at genres of music, jazz has things called standards, which are songs that every jazz musician knows and you play in your own style every time, but you didn't write them, but you can still record them as your own take on the standard. Um, and that's that's sort of my thing. And the other thing is like, when you're learning something, a lot of people will start out by emulating styles that they like. When, when, a, when a graphic designer or a graphic artist or somebody who's trying to do art as a career and offering it as a service, when they draw an, a character in an anime style, in an anime pose, you know, the classic, like, let's say bent over at the waist, doing a V for victory sign in an anime style. They didn't invent that style, you know? And this is, I think my issue is we don't have a great definition for ownership of any of this. We don't have clear lines drawn. And so that's how you can get stuff like AI art in the public zeitgeist at the moment. I mean, look at Lenza, the, the face recognition software or whatever it was, where you submit like a bunch of selfies and you pay eight bucks and in, in minutes, it'll spit out hundreds of portraits of different styles. And people will complain about this and say, you know, well, you're depriving artists of jobs, but you are offering, I think at the end of the day, the issue is that you're offering art as a service. And this is always going to happen. It's always going to get to a point where at some point, the art itself for the sake of your message is no longer enough to, to sustain it, especially when enough people want to make art because you can only appreciate so much, I think. So you get to a point where faster and cheaper, that's what the system is going to gravitate towards. And this is the problem with commodifying art. And this is what you're going to get into and what we have seen already. All you have in my mind, at least, and again, I'm oversimplifying and there's, there's obviously things I don't know about this. So please feel free to feel free to jump in and, and, and have a discussion with me about it. Um, but you are offering a service. Somebody is offering that service cheaper and better. Is it as ethical? That remains to be seen. Um, I think in a lot of cases, no. And so, you know, I'm coming down pretty hard on like defending AI art as a thing. So let's, let's swap over a little bit here and let's make a concerted effort. I don't like how the people who are proponents of AI art and think it's like really cool consider themselves artists. I don't think that's right. I think the best, um, somebody made a comparison, the best analogy I've, I've found for it. Somebody made a comparison on Twitter who was like, you're essentially ordering a pizza when you're using an AI generator, right? You're saying like, put these topics on, toppings on in this order. And oh, I spent like, I spent minutes tweaking the order of the toppings and where exactly they should go on the pizza. And then at the end of the day, like I created something. It's like, no, you didn't. You ordered a pizza. Somebody else made that in this case, an AI. And so I think, you know, if we want to go crazy here about ownership, I think that the person who trains the AI by feeding it a bunch of pictures is the teacher and the AI is the student. 
And what the AI produces is no more the ownership under the ownership of the teacher than it would be if if it was a human to human interaction where a guy was like, hey, draw, uh, draw Edward Munch's The Scream, but as if the guy from Dragon Ball Z drew it. That's that's essentially what you're the function you're performing. So don't think like you're you're not an artist. I'm not saying that AI art can't be artistic in nature. I think the tech might not be there yet because it is still derivative works. But there's so much of so much of art that's derivative. So much of this stuff, like none of this stuff comes out of nowhere. Styles get popularized and refined over time, but they're usually incremental builds on earlier stuff. Obviously, there's, you know, different examples. I don't think anybody drawn a melting clock before Salvador Dali, but like this is this is the thing, right? Some there was one um, Hank Green, one of the vlog brothers, did a thread where he was like, I'm just going to keep feeding the word cat into this image generator and I'm going to keep adding an A in the middle of it every time. So it was cat and then cat and then cat and then cat, etc. And he's like, I'm just going to keep doing this until it stops looking like a cat. And some of the pictures are really cool. And if you had told me, I think this is where it gets a little tricky for me ethically, is if you had told me a human made these, or if a human had somehow drawn this exact same set of pixels on the exact same page, why does that make it inherently better? I don't think that it does personally. But what I will say is that because AI, I view AI art as a tool that's still early in development, I think it does have the capacity to be used completely unethically. And, you know, we can we can argue all day about the ethics of stealing other people's art to train this monster to monster to train this monster to create uh, to to start generating its own art. But there's so many parallels you can draw there between somebody who started reproducing characters as, as a kid when they were learning art. And a lot of the argument I see from people boils down to a very sentimental, like these people took thousands of hours to learn this craft. And it's like, that's cool, but it's done faster and cheaper. And that is, if you're commodifying something, you just had a competitor come out with a new technology that can undercut your, your business model. And that's sort of the nature of commodification in the capitalist world. It's, and in this case, it sucks, but automation has been going on forever. I don't understand why this is sort of like a new thing. The argument you see for that is, well, you know, like, most of the time automation was to take away jobs that most people didn't want. And that's blatantly not true. It was, it was to make jobs quicker and cheaper to do. That's what it was. The side effect is that it might've saved us from having to do some terrible backbreaking work, but also, I mean, ask the people who in Canada got car plants shut down because, or not shut down, but there were mass layoffs at car plants because assembly lines became automated. Ask those people if they wanted to keep those jobs. They probably did because they were pretty mad about losing them. So this kind of stuff happens all over the place. And it's, I think by, by trying to make it about art and what is art, I think you're kind of missing the beats a little bit on, on what the conversation actually is about. I think as an artist and as somebody who's in that field, you have a very unique opportunity to discuss and try and get in touch in some way with, with the leaders of this technology and see if you can figure out an ethical, a, a way to make it an ethically valid tool because i think at the end of the day that's what it's going to be for a lot of people it's going to lower the barrier to entry some people don't have the means or the skill to produce art does that mean they should be not allowed to produce it because then we can get into the argument of like some people don't have the means or the skill to perform a job but they still get hired um for whatever reason you know there's a multitude of reasons that could be the case and uh some people don't have the the means or the time or the skill to get through a video game which is a, in my opinion a form of art but it's also entertainment and art a lot of the time falls under entertainment for people um 
and and people are you know the, the idea is like well you should create easier modes for those people so we can all enjoy it when and so when artists say well you know you should be putting the time in if you want to draw it you should be getting good basically and it's like that's not that's not constructive have we been fighting against that for years well you're taking people's jobs i don't i don't think so i think this is just, it it really depends it could go either way and this is why i'm not sold on ai, AI art and i know i've come down on the side of it a lot recently but I think not because I think it's an inherently good or bad thing. It's a tool. It's a hammer. You can you can smash some nails in with it and help build a house better than trying to punch the nails in with your own hands. Or you can beat somebody to death with it brutally. The hammer itself is less important than the person wielding it. And I think that's the same with AI art and AI generators and all this stuff. It does open the door for people to very easily rip off, uh, rip off certain you know, rip off artists and, and generate derivative garbage work. But that's always been the case. Counterfeiters have been a thing in the art industry for a long time. When the digital age came out, you could counterfeit Pokemon cards and stuff like that incredibly easily. Um, this stuff is, I think it's, it's this, it's a new iteration of the same problem of you have a tool. Should it not exist because it can be used for evil? And I think if you apply that logic to most major inventions in human history, you know, uh, like the, industrial revolution and the technology that came out of that the internet for example a lot of people would it would would say that the internet's been a net negative on society i don't think it has been a net negative uh, especially for graphic designers because they now have a much easier way of working and reaching clients and stuff like that what i would say is that it has the capacity to be used for both good and evil and i think the important thing is we need to start having good faith ethical conversations around what it should be and we need to hope that these large companies will listen and if they don't listen how do we how do we fight that? How do we fight back? And to most people's shock and amazement, I'm going to reveal the most effective way of fighting against a major corporation. Most effective way for a single person to fight against a corporation. And it is not crying on Twitter. Don't spend money. That's it. We live in a capitalist society. Don't spend money. And, you know, small aside for AI art, if you're mad about this thing stealing your art, steal it back. I mean, if, they, if they're going to claim that, you know, their, their generation is completely uniquely theirs when they stole your art, take it back. Start selling it as your own. Screw it. Fight fire with fire. But anyway, the most important way that you can influence a capitalist system as a solo person or as a group of people is to not spend your money. Vote with your wallet is the casual, is the, is the casual saying, the common saying. And this rings true. If you don't like a video game, don't whine about it on Twitter because the developer is not going to care as long as you keep playing the game. This is why you can get a franchise like Pokemon when, when it comes out, the majority of the public sentiment is like this game is uninspired, it's boring, or it's broken, or something's terrible, or it's not as good, or the Pokemon are garbage, or the design's terrible. And yet, Scarlet and Violet can come out and be broken on release and have many, many issues that are largely technical and still be the fastest selling video game of all time. Because people just buy it. Why would Nintendo and the Pokemon company change their, change their minds, change their strategy when people are still buying it? They wouldn't. They don't give a shit about ethics. They don't care about any of you. Your number's on a spreadsheet. You're a bottom line. And knowing that hurts on an ego level because you're like, damn, I really thought this massive faceless corporation cared about me. But also, oh, and they owe their success to the fans, yada, yada, yada. So stop being fans. If they're not doing something you like, you don't owe them this allegiance. There's plenty of Pokemon games to play out there. There's fan-made games that might be shut down, but you can always give it a whirl while they're available. There's plenty of Pokemon content for you to consume that isn't new, that that will allow you to still experience Pokemon, but 
make a meaningful change. Crying about it on Twitter is not going to do anything. It's not a form of activism. I don't know if people are doing this to try and get like credits for their college application or whatever, but it doesn't work. What you should do is try to get people to band together to not buy it. And I blame influencer culture for a lot of this, or for some of this anyway, recently. Um, FOMO has always been a thing, fear of missing out, that feeling of like, oh, everybody's doing this, so I have to do it. And Lenza, this AI-generated 500,000 portraits of you in various styles for $8, this was just another iteration showing that consumer accountability is super important because you even had artists who do this for a living on Twitter being like, oh my God, I look so cool as an anime princess or as like a, a space opera king or look at me, I'm a cowboy or look at me, I'm this, that or the other thing. And they are artists and they're active. Like I was sitting there like two, two weeks ago. Didn't we all hate this? Weren't we supposed to not be fans of this? So why are we fans now? And it goes to show that the consumer accountability needs to be there. Nord, one of my community members came up with a kind of an interesting bandaid solution where if some, if art is offered for sale somewhere, you know, on like Etsy or something like that, there should be a designation that, that is legally binding that says this was generated by an AI or this was created by a human. I think that's a really good solution because you put the accountability back into the consumer's hands and you let the market operate the way it's supposed to be. And as an artist, you can do your best to educate people. But I think the sort of tone of a lot of the discourse that I'm reading is very sentimental. It's very like, how could they do this to us? I'm screaming, I'm crying, I'm throwing up, I'm so upset. And I get it. It's This could be a, this could very well be a seismic shift in the way that the art landscape and the in the artistic landscape for everybody, you know, music when it gets there, art when it gets there. This is a seismic shift, but you're not going to you're not going to change minds by by crying. It it's not going to work permanently or it's not the most effective way, I should say. You might change some minds by crying. And I think in a lot of cases the people who who are blindly like this is a terrible thing outright, I think that's a very simplistic position to take on what is an undoubtedly insanely complex ethical issue surrounding ownership of IP and reproductive rights but not in not in the bodily autonomous way but in like a the reproduction of of works way um to say like oh this is bad or oh this is good i'm gonna you know let's try and i'm really bad at, at playing both sides of the argument here it's i'm usually pretty good at it but this time i'm terrible but saying like oh this is good and there's no problem we should just allow everything let's let's go on this train for a bit that's also a terrible idea because people are going to steal stuff and people are going to look for the easiest way to make a quick buck and then tr- and then bail look at nfts look at <laughs> look at a lot of cryptocurrency started off as a good idea could have had some and the blockchain technology is very interesting and has a lot of potential uses but you had a bunch of people who bandwagoned on it screwed it up tried to create derivative products they were all garbage to cash in on a quick uh quick fomo trend nfts is probably like the the funniest one again the best the best uh the best sort of analogy i heard was like buying an nft is essentially like having a marriage certificate and being like okay you guys can all have sex with my spouse you guys can do whatever you want it doesn't matter you can save the picture, right-click, save as, but I'm the one who's married to her. I am the one who's married to him or her. And that that's funny. Like, it did, like, all the, and this is, like, the notion of ownership and why it's, it can go ethically sideways, even if you're talking about it from a constructive standpoint where ownership is, is an important thing for some folks. But if you don't understand ownership or have a clear definition for it, all you're doing is, like, printing out a receipt that says you own it. And saying you own it and actually owning it in act in in practicality are two different things as we see. I own this picture in or I own a receipt or something like that, but anybody could save it and consume it and use it however they want. So do you own it? What is the benefit of owning it in this case? Just pride, I guess. So yeah, I mean the the ethics conversation can go completely the other way as well. 
And I don't think we should just allow this to continue unhampered. I think it should be shaped ethically. And, and you try to say, like, give the artist opportunity to opt in or out, maybe. that's I think that's probably a good idea. I worry that a lot of artists wouldn't opt in because they're trying to protect their own job security, which I think is a losing battle. Um, and I think that, you know, the classic argument of like, oh, well, I'm not being fairly compensated for my work. It's like, well, I mean, have you compensated any, any of your influences, you know, like directly? I mean, sure, you've, you might have bought their products, but I, does that really count because they don't receive all that money? I don't know. You draw an anime character. You didn't invent anime. You know, you draw, you draw a character in the style of something. You didn't invent that style. Especially if you're doing it for a client who's like, oh, can you make this maybe look a little bit more anime or a little bit more, oh, I watched Spider uh, Into the Spider-Verse recently. Can you make it like that kind of style? Or can you make it look like Arcane? You know, the show Arcane, like you didn't make those styles, but you're, you'll happily take the commission. And that's, and to me, like, I'm not slandering that. That's fine in my eyes. I was asked by a, by a friend to write a little sting, a little loop for her stream as like a follower notification. And she's from the Middle East. And she asked me to make something in the style of Aladdin. So I went onto the internet. I learned about the double harmonic, uh, yeah, double harmonic minor scale, which is the scale that you would associate with Middle Eastern stuff. Um, I think most of us would, especially if, if you watched Aladdin. And like she said, she wanted it in the style of Aladdin. Um, I learned about some of the, uh, you know, like the Oud, which is sort of a uh, cousin or distant cousin or ancestor to the guitar. I think it's probably older, but I learned about the Oud. I learned about some of the percussion. And from there, I tried my best to approximate something and, and she enjoyed it. She thought it was cool. And I was asked to do this, you know, and asked to basically make something in the style of somebody else. I didn't charge money for it. She wanted to pay me. I said no, because, you know, I'm, it's just something I was doing for fun and she's a friend. So might as well do that for free. Um, and I'm, and I made something and she enjoyed it and she had it on her stream for a while. Um, is that bad? So how is that different from an AI generator briefly taking a glimpse at some examples? And I listened to some music to try and get the feel in my ears and then trying to resynthesize that. And I think that's what a lot of commodification of art both visual and any other kind of art boils down to is that you're creating something not because you have an important message to send, which is, I would argue most people's definition of art is you have a message, a way of expressing yourself. That's unique to you. You're not doing that when you're commodifying art. A lot of the time you are drawing something to fit somebody else's needs. And that to me is like a completely different thing. I don't think those should be, should be lumped together under you're essentially generating art because you're, you're the person's like, basically using you as an AI generator and saying like putting in prompts being like, can you make it sound a little bit more in this case, you know, in my case, Arabic, can you make it sound a little bit more like Aladdin? Can you add a little bit more of this kind of percussion here? Can you do this, that, and the other thing? And eventually the end product isn't what you initially envisioned. You just put it together out of prompts that this person was giving you. So I think that there are a lot of parallels. I'm not saying that's an invalid way of doing things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. You should do that as an artist. If you're going to commodify something, you need to you need to earn, earn your money, you know, like you're saying. But to see something just because a an automated form of that is coming out and does it faster and cheaper, A, that doesn't mean it's better. And B, steal it back. You know, if, if you're worried about them stealing your stuff and there's no repercussions for them doing it, what leg do they have to stand on in court if you go ahead and steal it back and say like, well, they ripped off my artwork anyway at the beginning. They took mine, you know? And big companies have very, very frequently stolen, especially, I think this is more common in art. I'm not sure about music, but it's much more common in art. Clothing designers, graphic designers, 
art just being like, oh, yeah, they looked at my art and then they said no. And then they ended up with a logo that was weirdly similar to what I sent them. Absolutely. And those people should be should be prosecuted. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not I'm not saying take away all notion of ownership. I'm saying we don't have a great notion of ownership and it hasn't been consistently enforced. I think copyright needs to be very rapidly updated. Um, this is sort of a different topic, but I think copyright law is in, insanely antiquated and needs an absolute makeover. Like copyright shouldn't last as long as they do. I also don't think that they should be passed on, able to be passed on, you know, generationally or whatever. I think at some point after 50 years, after you die, maybe you don't need to make any more money. Maybe your kids don't need to make any more money off of what was not their idea, you know? So I, I would say that like, especially with stuff like music and in a culture that is becoming incredibly disposable, why does copyright last so long? Like, and, and why do we have these issues of like people trying so hard to own something that isn't theirs to begin with? The classic one that, that I always come back to is the, uh, the, the Rolling Stones sued the Verve. Bittersweet Symphony uh, was the song that the Verve wrote. And it has that string sample. If you'll forgive my singing. It has that sample. And that sample is from an orchestral arrangement of a Rolling Stones song. I don't remember which one. And they sued him because he was only allowed to use five notes. And as you can imagine, that's, he used slightly more than five notes. So they sued him. So he only has tertiary or third composer writing credit on that song. And he was very had a very good sense of humor about it when they asked him. He was like, well, it's the best song the Stones have ever written, which is hilarious because Mick Jagger and I think Keith Richards have the first two writing credits. So that you're like, wow, that's kind of cringe. He did sample their their music or an orchestral arrangement of their music. He didn't have uh, permission to do so. And you're like, well, yeah, OK, so that fits the definition. But then you learn that the Rolling Stones stole that song from a gospel that has no owner because it's a gospel, you know, very much in tradition with jazz music and its standards. You have, it's more of a communal song that got made over time when people weren't obsessed with like, oh, this is mine because I want to make money off of it. Um, they just made something that was communal and for, and for the sake of, they wanted us to tell their story with it, you know? And I think that is uh, kind of endemic of where we're at with commodification of music. The Stones sued a guy for using a song that they stole from a gospel. That is crazy. And that is just fine, apparently. And the legal, and this is why I mean the legal system and copyright needs to change because it, it's so, it, it's too slow. It's too slow and it takes too long. And we live in a digital world where things change months, minutes apart. And we need something that'll keep up with that. It's going to be hard to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't know the first thing about it, but it does blow my mind that somebody's estate could keep receiving money for something that the, the people who are now part of the estate did not write or make. It was made like 400 years ago. Um, uh, look at a lot of Disney movies. Disney movies, a lot of the ones that we watched when we were kids came from folk tales of varying cultures fall, being part of the public domain. So you could make commercial products out of them and not have to pay licensing fees. And now Disney owns everything in the entire universe and is like just an absolute company of lawyers when it comes to anybody infringing on their copyright. I don't know. It's it's just crazy to me. Um, it's, it's a completely backward system. So I'm I understand the notion of like, you need to make a living off this and you do, but I think it, it feels like Luddite smashing the loom a little bit. And I know that's a word, a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. I don't think that your, your concerns aren't justified as, as artists. I think they are, um, because this does have the potential for incredibly unethical use. And unfortunately we have seen examples of incredibly unethical usage, but there's some value in accepting the system that you're in and finding a way to exist within that system. 
we live in a capitalist structure unless the society collapses tomorrow and we go we move to like anarcho syndicalism or something this is how it's going to be so what can you do in that so number one artists don't use lenza what like come on that'd be like me being against animal cruelty and then you know buying something made out of an entire animal that i killed with my bare hands um maybe a terrible example but either way like don't use lenses don't do these things don't get sucked in by fomo spend your money the way you want it to be done educate people it'll have to be gentle and i know people hate this i know people want to be like my point of view is so obviously right and it's so based on logic and facts i need money to live this is going to take away my money to live therefore it needs to stop i think that's you have to be gentle with people if you think that the titanic or a ship is sinking a ship will often sink you know with its butt first pointed straight up in the air and people think that the best course correction is to take a wrecking ball and smash the exposed part of the ship so that it flips the rest of it up onto the surface but all that does is it breaks the ship in half it won't do anything you need to gradually gradually right the ship and pull it out of the water using whatever means necessary and i think and this is why i always preach for this and i know that you know people hate this because vitriol gets more engagement and with more engagement you feel like your your community is more engaged but it's just not the case getting more clicks getting more people to talk about it in an in oftentimes a vitriolic way it's not helpful and then going out and buying the product later is equally unhelpful because like how much water can your argument really hold if you're like yeah don't use ai art but i really really wanted to look like an anime print so yeah i spent the eight bucks and i sold my i sold or i gave a bunch of my my selfies to a company that's known for mass surveillance of the people and uh training training algorithms to pick people's faces out of riots so they can be persecuted later but that's super that's a good use of your money but this is the problem and this is why i harp so much on consumer accountability people don't care and until people face repercussions they won't care because people generally speaking care most about what directly affects them and this is this is sort of uh, the nature of the world. We're very short-term thinkers. And that's not an excuse. I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, well, it worked like this during the proto-human era 400 million years ago or whatever, so that's the way it should stay. The important thing is that you have to acknowledge this. It's kind of like a know-thine-enemy thing where you have to acknowledge these impulses and the reason we all procrastinate and the re- or a lot of us will procrastinate and the reason a lot of us won't think too hard about the ethics of what we're purchasing is because that's long-term thinking and humans are much more suited to short-term thinking as a survival instinct. So that's not an excuse. That's just something that occurs frequently within human society. And so we can recognize that and we have to combat that. I, I don't buy Pokemon games. I, if I don't think a game's going to be good on release, I don't buy it. And it's not that I don't buy it because I'm some, you know, like I'm taking a huge stand or whatever. And I'm, I'm not going to try and convince other people not to buy it. I will offer my opinion when it's asked for. But when I don't buy it, that means that I haven't participated in something i don't agree with forspoken is going to come out i'm sure the game's going to be fine and it might be you know popular on release i don't think the game's going to flop by any means um even though the dialogue is written by joss whedon if joss whedon had like seven lobotomies but i think the game is perfectly competent i think people are going to enjoy it i cannot justify spending 93 and a half dollars on it pre-tax canadian i can't justify it it's not worth that to me God of War was worth the $90 price tag because, or at least I thought it was, but if I got burned by God of War, Ragnarok that just came out, I would not be buying the next one. Like the next Horizon, for example. I'm probably not going to buy that on release whenever they release it. I'm not going to buy the DLC. I'm not going to buy the game until it comes out and I can see with my own eyes that it's good. Here's a classic one. You guys want to band together about something? I'm getting a little turned up, but 
you guys want to band together about something, something really obvious that most people can agree would be a good idea. And influencers, we need you to pull your weight here because you have much, you're called an influencer. So like, let's, let's get over the fact that we have to be accountable for our own actions a little bit. If let's make a rule right now, you know, you want to call to action. Here we go. You want your typical like rah, rah, rah. Let's get on social media and whine about stuff. Here we go. If a company embargoes a review of a game so that reviews can't be released before the game comes out, it's standard practice in the industry for reviews to come out before the game. Reviewers and, and publications get advanced copies so that they can review it. If somebody embargoes that and doesn't let the reviews come out, do not buy the game. It's a terrible practice. Buy the game later. Buy the game six months down the line, three months down. It'll still be there. It'll still be the same game. I promise you won't miss out on anything. That's an industry practice that is like pretty universally an evil practice. If somebody's embargoing reviews, it's because they're probably not confident that the game's going to sell well on reviews and the reviews are probably going to impact sales negatively. I also think pre-ordering digital games is pretty dumb. I know they give people incentives like here's something you're going to unlock later in the game anyway, but I, I don't think pre-ordering games on a digital medium is fun. If you're ordering collector's editions, I can get behind that. That's fair. And if you pre-order a game because you know it's going to be good, okay, fine. But if you're pre-ordering a random game, don't do that. I, I don't think it's a good idea. It, pre-ordering was to ensure copies of a physical medium when supplies were limited. Digital, it's unlimited. So why would you pre-order it? Um, so I think in that case, pre-ordering is a little bit, you know, maybe it's a little bit different now that I'm saying it out loud. It depends. But I'm not going to buy the next Horizon on release. I will wait until it comes out. I will see if it's good. I will see if they've changed anything meaningful within the game that would make me, again, justify $90 plus on it. And then I will, I might purchase it or I'll wait for it to go on sale. Like for Spoken, I'm probably going to wait for that thing to go on hella sale. And depending on how it's received, it might go on sale really quickly. So it all depends. But we as consumers need to be accountable for what we're buying. If you or at least comfortable with knowing what we're doing, if you purchase a Lenza package and it's terrible and Lenza comes and Lenza eventually, you know, overtakes the world as some sort of like, AI generation uh, monopoly, you're implicit in that in some ways. And this is why it's important, I think, to, to not hitch your car to any wagon too early because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But the best thing we can do is talk about it and talk about it in a constructive, non-vitriolic manner where people can try and look past their own biases and other people can help them and we can help each other look past our biases because maybe I'm biased, maybe I'm missing something. Um, I like to and this is why I like to engage in topics like this and why I want to have conversations with my community is because maybe somebody has got a perspective I don't have. You know what? Probably somebody's got a perspective I don't have. I don't have always the biggest perspective. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty solo bolo. I, I do a lot of stuff by myself. So a lot of it's just me in my own head and going on social media and reading people's takes is not the best uh, antidote for that. So it's fun to listen to people talk about stuff at length, but in good faith. I can't stress that enough. I'm not coming in here saying that commodification of art is wrong or you don't own your shit or whatever, or you shouldn't. I'm saying I don't know. I'm saying that in the past, commodification of different things has led to the same patterns we're seeing. If somebody can produce it faster and cheaper and of comparable quality, that's what's going to be, you know, in the free market consumed more. So what does that mean for you as an artist? How can you get on top of that? How can we ethically talk about AI um, as, as uh, art generation and really come to a conclusion about that. And, and how can you as an artist empower yourself with discourse to find a way to still exist in a, in, in a post AI art world, because that might be a reality and, and crying about it and getting all sentimental and being like, I can't believe they would do this to us. Oh my God, the fickle public. 
I can't believe they would when you have like hundreds of years of history of this happening is is counterproductive. If it is going to happen, you need to be on the cutting edge of that and understand why it's happening. And I think that's that's where you have to sort of gain other people's perspective. Like, why would people buy $8? Why would people spend $8 to get 500 selfies? Because they want selfies in certain styles and that's the cheapest and fastest way to get them. That's it. It's nothing to do with personal attacks on artists. It's nothing to do with this, that, or the other thing. It's just cheaper and easier. And we're pretty short-term thinkers. Anyway, this was a bit of a heavier episode. I, uh, I, I enjoy topics like this, even though they're a little bit um, depressing sometimes. I think sort of contemplating the nature of the world and, and seeing how much gray there really is in the world is sort of an inherently depressing thing because nothing is as virtuous as it seems, or at least nothing that... It's not not a lot of stuff is going to be as virtuous or black and white as like good versus evil as it seems. And that's a bit deflating because you want something stable to believe in. But I think the cool opportunity is the fact that we get to participate in discourse in this. And really, if you can get your message out there in some way and educate people in a gentle way and, and sort of explain to them your point of view and they're taking it in good faith and you're receiving it in good faith, like that's that's the key. And that's so exciting that we get to do that. And so these topics are hard to talk about, but I, I want to make them less difficult to talk about. I want people to feel like they can talk about this stuff without getting their their backs up or feeling like somebody's attacking them. Or And the internet is such a... Is, social media especially, like Twitter, is such a bad place to do that. Um, so let's talk about it. Find me on, in my Discord. If you go into my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash sparkcity, and you type exclamation mark Discord into my chat, it'll pop up a little link for you if you want to join. Um, find me on Twitter at the spark city. Uh, I know it's not the best place for nuance, but if you want to get some discussion started, you can reach out to me there. Follow my Twitch channel. If you want to see me live, I do a lot of trophy hunting. Um, starting crash four on Monday. Thanks a bunch, Nikki. And, but yeah, I hope everybody has a great week and let's, let's try and be open-minded about this stuff and let's try and see, let's try and see where we can take AI art as a concept and as, as a, as a practice. Cause I think it's promising. I think it's got some really cool parts to it. Um, I think it's a bit of an inevitability but I think it needs to be shaped correctly. Um, I think it has a right to exist, even though it can be used for evil, because most of our inventions can. That's sort of my take. But we need to be vigilant about it. We need to be constantly on it and, and making sure it's being used in an ethical way. But anyways, hope everybody has a great week. Try not to get too depressed. Uh, and uh, yeah, I love you all very much, and I'll see you next weekend. Bye-bye.